All right, hello. Hello, hello, hello. Let me check and make sure. Hello, okay, good. Hi, everybody. <laughs> uh, welcome to uh, episode number 360 of Critical Q&A, and this is our live show where I get to answer your questions, this time based on what you throw for me in the comments or chat box, uh, which is now, uh, will be uh, visible on the side there. Anyway, hey everybody, good morning. Um, so I uh, decided to do a live stream. I think we're, we're trying to do this about once every four or five weeks or so is how I'm trying to make this work. So it seems to be, uh, seems to be working out okay. So uh, I hope those of you who are joining me here live today are uh, looking to get some questions answered <laughs> uh, about Scientology, destructive cults, course of control, eye control groups, uh, or whatever else you want to ask me about. Um, I will start off uh, the show this week saying I'll, I'll uh, we talked about this in the, um, ah, there we go. Good morning, Jay. All right, good. Make sure the chat's working. It is excellent. Uh, so I'll start off this morning uh, while everybody uh, kind of finds out I'm going live. I really need to probably get back on social media. I think I need to do that. Although I'm, um, I've got plans to do that, but not necessarily personally. I'm sort of trying to think about what I'm going to do with my channel. And it's, it's still me. It's still Chris Shelton. But... I don't know. I'm still thinking about it. I don't want to have, I don't want to go back to social media with the same thing I was doing before because that wasn't really working out so, for me so well. Um, interesting. I'll have to check that out. I was just looking at this comment from WW. Uh, how about an interview with Tommy Fellows from Colorado Ped Patrol? Predatory catching is a YouTube genre. Um, interesting. Yeah, Jay, I don't know about having somebody else do my work for me. I don't really have the resources or uh, ability to, to set that up quite yet. Excuse me, but um, I'm working on it. I'm trying to figure that out. I'm trying to figure out how I should be presenting myself out into the big wide world. Um, because I got my, um, it looks like it's going to be within the next month or so that I'm actually going to get a final completion on my master's program. And that's going to be a done deal, finished, official. I got my grade this week on my uh, master's thesis, uh, which was original research done on the topic of Scientology. And, uh, and what, I, what I came up with in that paper, maybe we could talk about it if you guys want to know about it. Um, but I did do uh, research on that, and um, and my professor, who was also my thesis advisor uh, and one of the reviewers of the paper, as well as another two people. It's a three, if I recall right, if I got it right, it's a three-person process to review the papers that get turned in, and at least in the UK system at Salford. And so the program is, I, I completed the program as far as doing all the work. I had to get a few extensions along the way. It went from a year program to about a year and a half program. Because of that, uh, that was on me just because of my schedule and timing and everything. And so now all the work is completed. The thesis is now graded. And um, I got an extremely good score. I got, a, I got an, uh, an 80 out of... And it's not on the U.S. system of scoring. It's on the U.K. system. So what I'm told is that, that what I got, the score I got, was, was that it was practically publication quality uh, or, or publication level uh, writing, which I'm very, very, very happy about, of course, because that was the best thing I did during the year. That was the best result I got in terms of a, an assignment grade. Most of my grades were in the 60 band, which is perfectly fine. Uh, it's not a D level of work like it is in the U.S. system. In the 60s, you're doing just fine over there. Um, but the 80 was particularly good. So I was very, 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 very happy about that. Um, so put that out there for posterity. And thank you guys for your very nice uh, comments on that. Okay, so um, my paper was about um, Scientology. And I researched five... What I did was I took, I, I've, been, I've been dying to talk about this, and I haven't really talked about it a whole lot. So here's a perfectly good format to talk about it in and share with you guys. 
And what I did was I took five of L. Ron Hubbard's lectures. L. Ron Hubbard uh, was the founder of Dynamics and Scientology, and he gave over 5,000 lectures on the subject of Dianetics and Scientology, some aspect of it, whether it was organizational, Sea Org, uh, you know, policy lectures, how people should do their jobs. But, you know, of and of course, far more lectures about the mind and life and Scientology and the spirit and, and uh, how to do auditing. That is what most of the lectures are about is procedural. Um, techniques and, and the theory behind those techniques. And Hubbard was really, really good at running a line of BS. And he could talk for hours and hours and really not say a whole lot of anything. Uh, it was actually quite a skill he had. <laughs> and, uh, and it was quite something going back and selecting. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, Vernon, I will get to your question. Uh, yes to all of those things. <laughs> um, Okay, cool. So, um, okay, so what I did was I took, uh, I took on the subject of Scientology security checking. And Scientology security checking, or what they call confessionals, is often, often compared to Catholic confessionals or confessionals that are done in other religious contexts. And that's wrong. I have made that mistake myself. I was actually corrected on that by people uh, years ago who were Catholics, right? Who were like, yeah, no, 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 no. Scientology sex checking is nothing like a Catholic confessional. And we had been told in Scientology that it was, that this was the exact analogous thing and that security checking or confessionals in Scientology were completely the same thing as what the Catholics were doing, and that confession is good for the soul, and that, you know, and that unburdening your conscience of, you know, your moral transgressions was a spiritual activity, and it was something that was very, very good for you. And, and it was, in fact, according to what Ron said, it was a, a key primary, fundamental principle in Scientology that you cannot make progress or gain in Scientology if you have a guilty conscience. So if you've got, you know, little crimes or misdemeanors on your soul, then you need to, uh, you know, free yourself of them. You need to unburden yourself. And more than that, Scientology then took that practice and used it to be incredibly invasive. And uh, now it's at the point where Scientologists are expected to simply cough over whatever information that is asked of them at any time uh, during these confessionals or security checks or uh, auditing, Scientology auditing. So... Um, uh, <laughs> okay, good. Questions are coming in here. Um, okay, let me just finish this and then I'll then I'll start going through those um, because I'm still answering this question of what my paper was about. So, okay, so um, so I took five lectures that L. Ron Hubbard gave, which were seminal fundamental lectures according to – I took the lectures that were part of the training for Scientology auditors now – uh, what lectures do they listen to from Hubbard in order to learn how to do this confessional auditing or confessional procedure? It's what it called, what it's called in Scientology. And I took the five most basic or fundamental of those, and I basically did what's called a thematic analysis or a, a thematic content analysis. Um, and I did it. I, I did a little hybrid uh, sort of research methodology so that I could draw out from those lectures exactly using Hubbard's words, not mine, but his. Let's go through and let's find where he and how he created a framework of coercive control. How is auditing actually not therapeutic, not helpful, not remedial, but in fact damaging and psychologically manipulative and abusive? And I used Hubbard's own words to break down how he created a belief set around this confessional procedure. For example, how he used his words to create the idea that abuse is not only something that is sometimes something you have to do to somebody, but in fact is required, is mandatory. Abuse 
is necessary was one of the themes that emerged from going through Hubbard's lectures, that it's actually required that you be rough, tough, and mean and abusive to people in order to help them. Hubbard actually said that. He said basically, so in so many words, he put that out there amongst other themes that emerged from the research, things I didn't see coming. For that, that was one of them. There were others along the lines of what the e-meter is doing in a session, how it becomes the diviner of truth, how if, it, if the meter doesn't register or confirm what the, what the Scientologist, what the preclearer, the person getting sec-checked, if the meter doesn't confirm the validity of what they're saying, the auditor does not believe them and challenges them and invalidates them and tells them what to think, despite the fact that the auditor's code in Scientology, the moral code for Scientology auditors, specifically states that you will not evaluate or invalidate the preclear in the auditing session. Yet the framework that Hubbard created demands that the auditor evaluate and invalidate the preclear every few minutes using the e-meter, something that no therapist in any counseling session anywhere in the world would ever do, right? This is just unethical practice across the boards in any um you know, respectable, uh, educated, therapeutic situation. You simply don't badger people and tell them that they're wrong and tell them that they're lying or the equivalent of that when you're trying to help them. But in Scientology, that is standard practice. And I, and I broke all that down in such a way that it was pretty much, I believe it was a pretty airtight case for how Scientology is and cannot be anything but an abusive system, right? A system that is set up to harm you. And that's what I showed. And, I, and it was way more successful than I ever imagined it would be when I started that project. I knew I had some good ammunition, but the, the analysis and the research and the work that I did really laid it out. And then the thesis makes the argument, right? I, I used the... Uh, the research results to to show how this was uh, absolutely positively coercive and uh, destructive, and so um, so I had a good time with that. Um, and uh, my professor thought that that was groundbreaking research. That's literally the words that he used. He said, this is groundbreaking. This is very, very good. This could change. This kind of research, this kind of analysis could actually change the conversation about how we look at destructive cults, how we look at what the founders or cult leaders are saying and doing Right Here's a method of deeply looking into their words and their, and their speech and breaking it down and showing how they are not really very nice people. <laughs> right? So, um, okay. So, uh, thank you. So, that is, um, that is what my thesis was about. And um, now that it's graded, once I get – I'm not sure yet – whether I want to post the thesis as such, it's a very long document. It's uh, very, it's kind of, it's a little cryptic. It's a little hard to read because it's in academic ease. You know, it's not written for you guys. It's written for my professors and for academics. And so, um, so it might not translate super, super well, uh, very easily. But what I do want to do is I want to, I'll prob, I probably will post it just to put it out there. But I, I'm still thinking about that. But what I do want to do is use that thesis. Uh, it's a 15,000-word, you know, 50-page document with 150 pages of attachments and stuff, right? So it's, it's this really big thing. So what I want to do instead is, is using that, I want to, I want to write some publications, uh, some publishable material, maybe with my professor, maybe with some other people, and get it published in some journals and use that research information and the, and the conclusions to write shorter, easier to read articles uh, that make the same point. So that will be, that's my goal right now. Um, the other thing I'm working on right now is that I'm very excited about that I started working on this week is, um, is I'm writing a new book and I'm working with a partner on that. I'm keeping it a little uh, close to the vest. I'm just telling you guys we're writing a book. 
And that's all I'm saying. I'm not going to say anything about when it's coming out or what it's, you know, any of that. It has to do with Scientology. And, um, and I am having a blast with it. I'm in the research and early writing. It's all outlined. The writing has begun. And it felt great to get back to writing again in that way and uh, actually start putting words down. It was a little, oh, my God, it's been a while. So it was kind of fun to do. Um, and I don't mean, I mean, because I've been doing this academic writing and schoolwork all year for a year and a half. And, um, and I haven't done a lot of writing on my video side for a while. And so that's kind of, that's kind of changing now because I'm also working on that tone scale video and I've got that busted out and I've been uh, working on that uh, sort of scripting. So, um, so there, so those are my, my projects that I'm working on right now, as well as, um, having just moved into a house. And so we're kind of doing a little fix up and get still, we still got boxes everywhere. I mean, we're still settling in. So it's been a very exciting spring, uh, for us here, uh, uh, you know, at, uh, Shelton's Shelton land. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so again, critics, thank you very much for your, uh, Wonderful words of encouragement and congratulations here. I really appreciate it. Um, so that answers the question, what was it about? Oh, oh, actually, let me tell you. Let me, let me, the, 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 I didn't even get to the punchline. I'm so lame. So the, the, the conclusion that I actually drew in the research, and I think I proved it. I really do. I think I showed very, very well. Uh, if I say so myself, and my again, my professors and my and the people who reviewed it seem to agree. Uh, I showed that Scientology is not only not doing Catholic level confessionals. That it, 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 confessionals in Scientology have nothing to do with what goes on in Catholicism. It's not even in the same planet. It's not in the same league. It's not in the same universe. They all, the only thing that that combines these two activities is that they both use the word confessional. But what Scientology is doing is completely different from that. And actually, and where I went to with this, is I showed that Scientology confessionals are actually parallel with or the same as a police interrogation. And police interrogations are coercive, and they are wrong. The way they are done in the United States, using what's called the Reed Technique, uh, R-E-I-D. It's named after a guy who came up with it. Um, they've been using this read technique for, for oh, I don't know, almost 100 years now. And, um, and it's better than what came before, <laughs> but it is still brutal, coercive control. And, it is, and, and this is why you get um, you know, innocent people confessing to crimes they didn't commit and stuff like that is because they are coerced into it. And the read technique allows that. It allows police officers, for example, to lie to you uh, in, a con in an interrogation. They can present false evidence to you to get you to confess. They can sleep deprive you, food deprive you, keep you locked up for as long as they want. There's a lot of things police have the power to do to you if they think that you're guilty. And they are trained to believe wrongly, but they are trained to believe that they are better at detecting lies in people than they really are, right? Police officers are no better at detecting lies in people than chance levels of percentages. They're, they're really, they really don't have any skill in it. Uh, you know, maybe little, little tiny bit more experienced than the layperson. But as far as their accuracy and spotting lies, they're really no better than anybody else. So, I mean, we're talking about maybe a percentage or two points better, right? It's like that much of a non-difference. So... They use this read technique to get the confession from you because they are convinced and they are trained to think this way, that you are guilty. And if they think you're guilty because they detected that you are lying somehow, then they will go all out to get you to confess, just like in Scientology, using the E-meter. The E-meter is the thing that tells the auditor whether you're telling the truth or not. They don't give a shit what you have to say about it. Right? You are the least important part of the confessional session in Scientology. You, the, the preclear, the person being audited. You, what you say, what you think, what you do doesn't matter at all. You are there to confess, and that is all you are there for. 
and um and that is basically my big conclusion on the thing right is that is that it not only is it not a religious um ritual not only is it does it have nothing to do with religion it is in fact a brutal interrogation that is done in a very similar way to the way that police interrogations are done so that was my big punchline conclusion on that so uh so that's what i showed all right guys uh let's get on with some of your other questions now but i do i do love talking about that because i don't get to talk about it a whole lot uh and it was a lot of work um and it was um, it was months and months of work. It was really it was really involved research. It wasn't just a little cursory take a weekend, go through Hubbard's lectures. It was it took me weeks and weeks to do this, and um, and it was hard. It was grueling work. I really wondered whether I was doing anything right, you know. But um, but boy, did it pay off in spades. I was so happy with with the results of that, and I believe that the technique that I utilized in doing this analysis is something that that's the groundbreaking part is we can do that same thing with more Scientology with more of Hubbard's works we can do that same thing with other groups right I can take Jim Jones's lectures or or speeches that we have transcribed I could take what we know from the Mormons from Joseph Smith's work I could take any written work or spoken work and break it down and analyze it this way and come up with some pretty interesting stuff. So um, anyway, so that was what that was about. Um, okay, so now let's go ahead and uh, get caught up on these questions here. Um, you guys are great. Okay. Um, yes, it is. Yeah, exactly. Uh, thank you, Henny. Okay, Debbie M. asks, Hey, Chris, what direction do you see yourself heading now you have your master's teaching, consulting, writing? Okay, well, I'm waiting for the final board approval before I'm officially a master's graduate. So I'm not claiming that yet. I don't have the letters after my name quite yet, but about a month from now, hopefully I will. Um, and in the meantime, I am looking at doing some lecturing. I'm going to investigate uh, what it takes to get into the Get, become a maybe a guest lecturer in the uh, Denver University system, maybe, or Colorado system. I'd like to do some talking to psych students or social students or psych social or religious studies students, and uh, not only from my experience, but also from my education. And uh, I'd very, very much like to do some of that work. So I'm going to be looking into that, as well as the other things, the other projects I told you guys I'm, I'm working on right now that I'm really, really excited about. Um, Oh, interesting question. PM asks, hi from Sweden. Hey, Sweden. Uh, I wonder if the staff working close to Miscavige are paid a lot more than the ordinary Sea Orgs as it would be in a normal company. No, PM, they are not. No, uh, they are. They do get. Okay. At the level of David Miscavige, at the international management, high, 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 rarefied air kind of level of Scientology, you have David Miscavige in his inner circle, and his inner circle are are the most probably the most abused people in Scientology. Um, certainly, they are not the most privileged. Uh, working for Miscavige is a bit of a death sentence. It's it's a temporary assignment because nobody lasts very long except for his communicator Lou, and it's and it's supposed that he's probably screwing her. Right? There's probably um, some kind of infidelity going on there. Unless, of course, Miscavige is rather asexual, which is a possibility, by the way, because um, it's, it, you know, he's just not into that side of life. At least there's no evidence or indication that he is that we know of. Um, and in fact, evidence seems to indicate having kicked his wife out, you know, he's not necessarily sleeping around. At least nobody's come out talking about anything like that ever. Ever. I mean, it's really interesting. Scientology is almost more anti-sexual as a cult than, you know, going into the opposite extreme where they abuse people with sex. They abuse people by denying sexual urges and, and curbing that activity more so than engaging in it. Anyway, um, but I, I, I digress. Uh, so, no, the people who are close to Miscavige, like where I was going with that, is they are the most abused. He, he, he just trounces those people, screams, yells, beats on them. And, um, and they might possibly be able to get 
uh, yearly bonuses that might be, you know, a few hundred bucks or maybe a thousand bucks or something every now and again. But otherwise, no, they're not getting paid any more than any other serial numbers are. Um, doesn't really work like that in Scientology. Everybody officially in Scientology is classified as a religious worker and a volunteer. So, you know, they get whatever the church gives them and they smile and they're happy about it, you know. I mean, that's, that's a joke, but yeah. Okay. Uh, Vernon, will you interview your mom and your dad again about their Scientology experience? No, I don't have any plans to do that. Uh, my mom's uh, interview with me was was extensive, and um, and I don't have any plans on, on interviewing my dad about that. Um, okay. Uh, why the words are skyrocketing? Uh, oh, boy, Raymond. Yeah. Raymond Vanderstelt asks, as a renter myself, I wonder why rents are skyrocketing in the U.S. What are the reasons and what can be done about it? Is there some form of regulation from the government? Uh, it's a complicated thing, Raymond. There's uh, every state, every area has their own uh, reasons as well as the overall sort of inflationary period we are experiencing, supply chain issues. Um, I mean, there's a whole world global supply crisis right now. You might have noticed the logistics all around the world are a little strained right now. And while I'm not an expert on any of this stuff, I, I try to keep my um, you know ear to the ground and figure out what the hell's going on. And it really does have a lot to do with supply and demand. It has to do with the way that uh, corporations are buying up properties and then not renting them or buying up properties and building and uh, out costing, you know, they, they charge so much that people can't afford it. Rents here in Denver, for example, are I think the fifth highest in the country right now. We, me and Mel, really lucked out finding the place we found here at the rate we found it. Uh, we are really flying under the radar in terms of... Uh, pricing here in denver it's uh, normally we would be paying twice as much as what we are for this property it is seriously ridiculous right now but i'm not an economics or uh you know sort of uh housing market expert so i can't really speak a whole lot more intelligently to it than the you know the various factors that uh that contribute to to supply and demand and the fact that those systems are being manipulated constantly, i.e. the housing market crash of 2008. Remember that? That was decades of manipulation of the housing market by people who thought that there was just an endless stream of money and that they would never, ever, ever run out of it. And uh, surprise, right? Things change. You know, that things are perfect and you are absolutely positive that they are perfect, just like in a cult. Just like in a cult. All the way up until the moment that they're not. And human beings, if I'm going to make any comments about this at all in terms of this, I will say that human beings are classically and famously um, and egregiously good at fooling ourselves and at not predicting future consequences and at not even trying to. We don't even try. I mean, let's be real. You know, I mean, unless it's really important to us, we rarely think through the consequences intended and unintended of our actions. And uh, when it comes to making money, people lose all perspective. All perspective. It just flies out the window. And here I'm talking about developers and housing market people and the people who are responsible for these prices being so high. It's not just a little small clique of people. We're talking about all of us. We're all kind of responsible. But the people who are most directly responsible for the stuff are mostly operating out of, out of uh, opportunism and selfishness and greed, right? Because uh, that's what runs our economy. So... Uh, so that's kind of what's going on there. And so don't look to them to try to find reasonable solutions to this stuff, right? Uh, and this is the push-pull of our economy. It's pretty pretty wild stuff. Um, and like I said, I'm not, I'm not a super expert on this, but, uh, but I know super experts on it, and I talk to them from time to time. Okay. Um, okay, Vernon, good question. Did you know that Kirstie Alley was president of Narconon in the past? She says it helped her with her drug addiction. Is it probable that some people will benefit from it? Thank you for asking me about Narconon, Vernon. Uh, Kirstie Alley was the spokesperson, the international spokesperson for Narconon. I don't think she was the president, but whatever. That's the, that, I, I could be wrong about that. 
Um, what I do know about it is that Kirstie Alley was um, was a uh, cocaine revert. She she got addicted to cocaine, got off of it, got back on it. She did the Narconon program, I think, once or twice. She said the program saved her life twice. So I think she was an unsuccessful graduate of it, and then she was a successful graduate of it. And good for her for getting off of cocaine. Um, unfortunately, she never got off the Scientology. And so Kirstie Alley's Twitter feed, for example, is an exercise in pure futility and nonsense. It is just ridiculous watching that woman go. At this point, her brain's pretty gone. But... Um, is it probable that some people will benefit from it uh, in terms of drug addiction? Narconon is not any more effective, and in fact, there's uh, uh, than any other drug rehab program, and there is uh, evidence that it is, in fact, destructive, and people have actually died doing it. Um, but people have died doing a lot of drug rehab programs. So I'm not, you know, so Narconon is bad, and it's abusive, and it's awful, and it is not based on any scientific theory that makes any sense. There is no scientific credibility at all to the Narconon program. And I got to stress that because there are other programs that do have some scientific credibility to them. Not all of them. There are some ridiculous programs out there, but there are also some really good ones. And there are people who are spending an incredible amount of money and time and dedicating their lives to trying very sincerely and very hard to solve the drug addiction problem. And we are finding now through the work of people like um, Height and uh, there's an, and there's, some, there's another, um, I'm trying to remember his name right now. Anyway, oh, Hari, Johan Hari has written about this and there have been others who have gotten on this bandwagon of the social, cultural effects uh, uh, and causes of addiction and that's, that addiction could be a social phenomenon as, as well as or partly a social phenomena, as well as an individual willpower sort of phenomena, right? We all have this sort of twisted moral view about addiction that somehow it's a choice a person makes. And if they would just make the right choices, everything would be fine. And this is as misguided and wrong as thinking cult members are just making bad choices. I talked on Friday about the choices that people make to get into cults and, and while they're in cults. And you do have responsibility for that. But there are other factors at play than just you when it comes to addiction, right? And uh, a lot of programs fail, not because the program's bad, but because after the program is done, the person goes right back to the environment where they were coming from, where all the drugs and the and the predators and the manipulators are right there, still right ready to manipulate and prey on them again. And so the program worked, but then they go back to that environment and it all falls apart, right? So again, there's this social component to that. So Narconon doesn't pay any attention to that at all, has nothing on any of that. Um, has uh, tools that you use. Uh, in other words, it teaches you Scientology. And Scientology tools are not really that great. The communications class is, you know, it's not a big deal. Uh, the integrity, the overts, the withholds, all of that stuff is really just blaming the victim and, and guilt tripping. And, uh, and there's an awful lot of gaslighting and manipulation that goes on there. So I don't think that's the way that you're going to help somebody off of a drug addiction problem is by further abusing and victimizing them. And that's what Narconon does. So um, I could go into and have in the past already detailed what the program is, how it's broken down. So I don't do that today. But thanks for asking about that, Vernon. I hope my answer was uh, somewhat satisfactory. Let me, I'll, I'll keep going through the comments and find out um yes shimoda i did know this uh, she says did you know the read technique that interrogation technique uh is now banned in the uk since about the 90s it was deemed ineffective after a famous case here and got banned yes shimoda i do know about that it was something we studied on the coercive control program i did is uh, is we t is police interrogations for exactly that reason they are fall under the umbrella of coercive control. And we studied coercive control across lots of different contexts, not just cults. So what the, what the um, 
what the what the UK is doing now is called the FAIR technique, and it's a much more open, communicative, and transparent process where suspects are interrogated, but they are not manipulated and abused in the process. Uh, and I've, I'm, I'm all about what the UK is doing there. I think that they have taken the next logical step in humane treatment of suspects and um, people who have committed crimes, right? Uh, how do you get them to tell you that they committed a crime without violating their rights, abusing them, or manipulating them into it so that you get innocent people confessing to crimes they didn't commit? And it's kind of weird. It's a little bizarre how often that happens. And people always go, well, I would never, and they'd have no clue what they're talking about. I would never do that. I would never confess. I would never say I did something I didn't do. Yeah, you do. Every time you fight with your wife, you do, buddy. <laughs> Come on, you know, or your spouse. I mean, we lie all the time. We accept that we have done wrong when we feel we really didn't, right? And we confess, oh, yes, I was wrong. Yes, yes. We do it all the time, right? Uh, but you put it in a more serious context, actually the same rules kind of apply, right? You will eventually, if you are being sleep deprived, food deprived, if you are being abused, if you are being um, ridiculed, if you are being introverted, if you are being made to think and say, you know, if you are being shown evidence, physical evidence, real live things, that they're telling you, prove you did something. Believe me, please, when I tell you, you will start doubting your own memories, your own sense of self, and your own reality. That is what will happen. Almost guaranteed. Very few people, very few people are immune to this. Right. In fact, I don't know anybody who is. I just throw it out there as like, you know, maybe there's some people out there who wouldn't fall into that trap. But I'm telling you, you sustain that kind of abusive uh, interrogation over somebody long enough, they'll tell you anything you want to hear. Right. That's the truth. And some people break very quickly. Other people take time. But pretty much everybody can be broken, right? And that's the truth. And that's what this read technique kind of enables. So it's a very positive move on the UK's part to have moved on from that. Um, okay, and yeah, it is very much still used in the US. There have been, I have attended conferences where police officers have come and, 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 and been told about this, right? And, ha and there are efforts now in the US to try to mitigate or reduce the use of the read technique or modify it uh, through law enforcement um, so that um, it's not quite so coercive and abusive. But it's a slow process because if there is one thing that don't, doesn't like to change, it's cops. Man, that whole culture is just embedded in staunch, we're right, we're doing this, and this is how it is. I mean, it's, it is hard to bring change into that world. And, um, but it's happening. It is happening. Okay. So don't, I don't want to make it seem like it's not. This is a very, very well studied area. The read technique and the coerciveness of it. There have been many, many, many papers written on this. There's been a lot of research done on it. And so the science really does support moving away from that. And America is gradually doing that. It's, uh, it's uh, going a lot slower than I would like, but it is happening. Okay, um, so there's my answer on that. Um, yes, yes, exactly. Yes, success is the ultimate fuck you, WW. That is true. I like that comment. Thank you. Um, I have thought about interviewing Jamie DeWolf. I really, really want to. It is just we have been ships crossing for literally years. And uh, I've just I've just never made it work, and uh, I will eventually get to that. Yeah, I, I do want to talk to him. Um, Pi Nigren asks, "Hello, I live in Norway, and wonder how Scientology is doing in Scandinavia and the Nordic countries." Pi, I'm sorry, but I am going to be totally honest with you and tell you I have no clue. I do not know anything about Scientology in Scandinavia. 
Um, I mean, I know that it, I know, uh, generically, I know what I know about Scientology worldwide, which is that it's this tiny shrinking little group. So I don't imagine this any different in Scandinavia, but I don't have any specific knowledge for you there other than um, it's headquartered in uh, Copenhagen. And uh, that's where the Sea Org base for Europe is located. Um, that's all I can really say about that. I wish I knew more, but I've never really dealt a whole lot directly with Scientology in Europe. I've dealt with many European Scientologists and Sea Org members who came over to the, to the U.S., but I never went over to Europe uh, when I was in the Sea Org. So I can't really talk too intelligently about that. Um, yes, thank you, Debbie. Thank you very much. Um, okay, Tim Greenglass asks, question, how does an auditor determine between one body thetan or a hundred or more? I'm not sure I understand your question, Tim, but if you're asking about solo auditing in Scientology where the person, the Scientologist, is trying to basically exorcise, get rid of spirits that are attached to them, right? You're, you're in, at the upper levels of Scientology, it's all about getting rid of these things called body thetans, which are uh, disembodied spirits, which are attached, like they're glued to you, uh, to your body, and you have to contact them telepathically and get in communication with them and rehabilitate them and send them on their way. And apparently this whole process of doing that is takes a few minutes, happens pretty quickly. You can clear this be, this this disembodied spirit and you know wake them up. Hey buddy, you know you're attached to me, you shouldn't be whatever whatever the process is and off they go. And it's this whole quiet silent process that a, that a that a high level Scientology auditor will do in a room sitting there by himself with an e-meter in front of him and some paper imagining that he's doing this okay this is the process and Scientologists spend thousands of hours doing this at the highest levels of Scientology it's really about as ridiculous as the highest levels of transcendental meditation which if you guys don't know um, at the high levels of TM, they're trying to do meditation to the point that they start levitating. They believe that through meditation, they will levitate off the ground. And in order to try to make this happen or in order to try to uh, enable this to occur, they start squeezing their muscles and, and, and hurling themselves, jumping, hopping around. It's the most ridiculous thing you can imagine. You can find YouTube videos of this. That's where transcendental meditation leads you. It leads you to brain death. Uh, you, you know, you do not want to become involved in that crap. Uh, very, and I just analogize that with it's the same level of nonsense going on at the highest levels of Scientology. You are just sitting in a room talking to yourself. So how do you determine how many body thetans? Well, there's thousands of them. Everybody's got thousands and thousands and thousands of them. And you just kind of do this process where you imagine that you are finding one and talking to it and sending it on the way. And then another one, and then another one, and then another one. Sometimes, if I understand it right, sometimes there are clusters of them. They, they get glommed together, kind of like if you can imagine some sticky spaghetti getting all clommed together. You know, it's like you got to prime apart all at once. And so I guess there's some procedure to uncluster them, um, you know, but it's all just kind of made up nonsense. So <laughs> there you go. Uh, okay, let's see what we got here. Kind of going back up here. Live in Atlanta. Oh, yeah, that's not good. Okay. Um, okay. Um, yeah, if I could get hold of Ian Rafalco, I'd interview him. I, if I, if that's who I'm thinking it is, um, but some of these people are hard to reach. Um, and I, you know, because sometimes I, you know, I have this rather small channel. <laughs> and, and I, you know, and sometimes I reach out to people and I just get ghosted. I just get ignored. I just, you know, whatever. It's no big deal. Um, I haven't even tried to reach out to Ian. Though. I'm not accusing Ian of anything. I just don't, I don't know him and I haven't been able to contact him. Um, 
Okay, if a Scientologist, Kiva Go asks, if a Scientologist pet is diagnosed with cancer, do they go with medical treatment or try to audit the Thetans out of their pets? Uh, I have never seen anybody try to audit Thetans out of a pet. However, that doesn't mean it hasn't happened. Uh, and I have heard of OT Scientologists kind of auditing other people from a distance, right? Oh, I'm going to remove your body, Thetans, right? Now, that's not official or whatever. It's only sort of alluded to. See, I didn't even know what body Thetans were when I was in Scientology, so I wouldn't have understood it that way. But there was communication that indicated that OTs were able to influence the case or the, the, the problems with other people at a distance. So... You know, my father was feeling upset and I sensed that and was able to reach out to him and do this thing and it was made better, right? That's kind of how it was talked about without mentioning BTs or auditing or what you do at the upper levels, right? This is kind of how I would hear about it as a lower level Scientologist. And I'd think to myself, ooh, wow, I wonder what those OTs can do. What? What is that? Like some kind of telepathy or what clairvoyance or something? What's going on there, right? And you'd be like, ooh, ah, ooh, ah. Uh, so to that degree, some Scientologists believe that they can actually create and influence other living beings from a distance. So when you ask me about this pet thing, I go, well, yeah, there's some Scientologists who might think they could beam that cancer out of their pet. Uh, I don't know if anybody thinks in Scientology that pets have body thetans. I've never heard of that concept before. But the idea that a pet could have a disease and um, that a thetan could do something about that is certainly core Scientology belief. So, you know, the answer to your question should be a resounding yes, Scientologists could do that, but it's actually kind of very individual as to what individual OTs believe they are capable of, if that makes sense. Um, okay. Uh, yes, Narconon is definitely not good stuff. Um, okay, Vernon asks, uh, since I believe in reincarnation, is there some truth to what Scientology teaches about mourning the death, when the person will get another body and another life. Uh, Vernon, I'm not sure what you mean by, is there some truth? I guess, um, do you mean, is there some truth to the idea that we should not mourn the loss of somebody when they die because they're really not dead and they're off getting another body and what's the big deal? I want to point out that the reason we mourn is for us. It's not for them. It's our reaction to them not being around anymore. So the suppression or the, you know, the idea that that is unimportant, negligible, shouldn't be done, is, is extremely judgmental and also um, just kind of wrong-headed because what you're doing when you're processing grief is your brain is literally rewiring itself. Because your brain is a predictive device. It, 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 that's, what it's, that's one of the key things it's doing, is it's trying to predict the elements of your life. And what this has to do with grief is grief is when you are predicting that things are going to happen, a person's going to show up, be around, a pet is going to be around, you're going to see it, smell it, hear it, you know, uh, right? And, and then you don't. And the brain's like, oh, I miss this thing. I want it there. It's supposed to be there. You feel the emotional response to these predictions is, oh, yes, I want this thing to be there. It's supposed to be there. But it's not there. It's different. Things have changed. And you have to adjust to that. That's the process. And it's a process that takes time. There is no on-off switch for our neural networks, right, for our neural pathways. It takes time to rewrite them. And the emotional component of that is the, is the slow process of getting used to that so that you're predicting things in a new way that, it, that doesn't include the presence of your grandmother, your mother, your whatever, right? Whoever died. Your pet, 
You know, this is why you keep thinking your pet's going to walk in any moment. Or you wake up and, you know, in an otherwise unguarded moment, you think your pet's right there. Or you can smell him or you can feel him. It's your brain messing with you, right? Because the brain is predicting that it's supposed to be there and it's not. And you're like, ah, and then there's that emotional part of it, right? And so that is the process. And so when you say to me, well, the person's still alive, so I shouldn't be mourning, I go, yeah, I don't know that we really understand what mourning is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what grief is. Because you can't help but go through that process because your life is going to be different as a result of them not being around anymore. And that grief process is you learning to accept that, right? And literally rewiring the brain to do so. And so, um, so that's what I can say about that and why it is that trying to deny those emotions or suppress them or say they're not real, don't exist, aren't important, that's why that's all a lie, right? Because it doesn't work that way. You can tell yourself whatever you want to about the process, doesn't really matter. The process is going to play out whether you want it to or not or whether you like it or not. And to the degree that you understand the process and you understand what you're going through, you can help it along. But trying to, to suppress it or deny it only extends the process and makes it harder to go through. Um, at least that's what I understand about it as I, as I know things. So uh, that's my take on that. Okay. Um, <laughs> trying to imagine tiny paw friendly e-meter cans that is so funny i have um i have i have heard once okay just once i have heard of okay i mean i got to describe this a little bit i hope you guys are are into this um in scientology you have the e-meter right and the cans that a person will hold on to but sometimes people have arthritic hands or hands or malformed hands or fingers or they're missing things or whatever, and they can't hold the cans. And so a solution for that is to use what are called wrist straps, where you take some aluminum or some tin and you make a little sort of, of, of cylinder, but it's an open one, and you can put it around and strap it onto a person's wrists to get the electrical contact. And you form that circuit the same way as if the person was holding the cans. These are called wrist straps. Well, what if you use those wrist straps on an animal instead of a human, right? And you completed a circuit that way with what is a living being who has electrical resistance. So you could theoretically put those wrist straps onto a dog or a cat, tighten them up, get that, get that circuit going, and then start asking it questions and, of course, interpret the responses on the e-meter however you want, right? And I have one time heard of a Scientologist doing that. <laughs> so, so I don't know about paw-friendly cans, but I do know about wrist straps. And uh, there's something you probably didn't know uh, that, I, that I can tell you about today. Okay. Uh, Vernon, can anybody walk into a Scientology org and ask to become a staff member? Yes, anybody can do that. Whether they'll take you or not is, is another question entirely. Um, okay. Uh, Raymond Vanderstedt, do you have any idea why Scientology is relatively successful in Taiwan? Not specifically, no. I am not at all familiar enough with the Taiwanese culture to be able to comment intelligently about what it is there that seems to uh, trigger Scientology. But for whatever reason, Scientology's managed to find an in in that culture. And, uh, you know, and they have uh, appealed to a slightly larger set of people in Taiwan than they have in other places in the world. But let's remember, it's still a tiny pipsqueak little nothing organization, even with it booming in Taiwan. That means that there's like, what, a thousand people in Taiwan who are into Scientology, right? A couple thousand. So, you know, again, not not huge, but, um, but certainly something. There's something going on there. Okay. Um, oh, yes, Kiva, I am. I didn't even know about this. Are you looking forward to the UK and Australian Scientology population results from last year coming out in June to see the trending uh, from previous results five to ten years ago? Yes, I very much would love to see that. I am very interested in that. 
Um, okay, looks like I'm catching up here. Um, good boxes. I don't understand what you mean, uh, Angel Hugger. Uh, asking on a completely different topic while you're unpacking, are you having any difficulty getting rid of good boxes? I don't know what you mean by good boxes. Um, maybe I'm missing the joke there or something. If you could clarify that for me, I'll answer your question. Okay, so, um, oh, we are, wow. Wow, this hour went by quick. I can't believe it's already almost 11. Excuse me. Okay, moving boxes. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. We're not having any difficulty getting rid of boxes. Uh, got them stacked up in my garage. I'm going to put them on Craigslist when I'm all done. Oh, you're looking for used boxes. Oh, well, yeah, I got used boxes if you want them. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm going to put them up on Craigslist after we're all done. Wait, we still have boxes we're emptying, so uh, we're still in, 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 in progress there. It's in, in, in process. All right. Okay, there we go. Oh. Hmm. Weird. Okay. I think we're going to start wrapping up the show. Uh, let's see. Any last questions you have, throw, go ahead and throw them in the queue right now. I also, of course, want to encourage anybody who is enjoying the show and finding it entertaining, informative, and educational to perhaps support the channel. Uh, I now have a Venmo account. I've put the, uh, I think it's at Shelton1492 in the uh, description section of my videos now. If you want to throw me some love uh, through Venmo or PayPal, the links are in the comment section. Otherwise, of course, you can sign on with my Patreon uh, account and support me on a monthly basis. Even a dollar, even just buying a cup of coffee, it really does make a difference, guys. It is a, it is a, it's being a fan-funded operation is an interesting way to live your life. <laughs> it goes up, it goes down. It goes up, it goes down. Uh, income is a funny thing when you are a content creator, but I will, I will throw out there that this is a lot of work that I do. And uh, the research, the writing, the, the video work, everything I do here, it's, it, it, it's, it's harder than it looks. And uh, while I do have a little small channel here, I am trying to grow it. And, uh, and I am trying to help the world at large. You know, really just kind of uh, be a little bit more. I mean, at this point, the goals have changed over the years. You know, it used to be when I first got out that I just wanted to expose Scientology, expose the abuses, end it. I really wanted to end Excuse me, I wanted to end Scientology. I don't really have that goal anymore. I don't really see that as a very realistic goal. But I do see as a goal raising common sense and raising critical thinking and, and trying to get across to people that, that, that they are much more open to manipulation and abuse than they imagine they are. Uh, we all are. We are very susceptible. And, uh, and if there was one thing I could get across to people, it would really be just how susceptible we are so that, not to scare everybody or freak everybody out, but just so people will just take a little bit more time, just be a little bit more careful in their decision making. Because if they were, the world would be such a better place just overnight if we just took a few seconds, a few minutes, hours, sometimes with the big decisions... We should take a day or two or three and think about it. You lose nothing and you gain so much by just pausing and thinking and looking at the possible consequences of your decisions. If I could just, if I could just make that much of a change in the world, ah, it'd, be, it'd be miraculous. So anyway, just time to, uh, you know, I, I don't think small, <laughs> unfortunately. But, um, but I, these are the kind of changes I think are a bit more realistic to make in the world that I'd like to contribute to. And so I'd like your help to do that. And so if you could uh, help me uh, help you <laughs> by spreading the word about this channel, about the work that I do, the, the, you know, the work that I have done, the book that I've written, uh, the, the, the work that I'm doing, I would really appreciate it, guys. I really would. All right. So let's go ahead and uh, start wrapping up here. Um, Oh, Shimoda, yes. Um, 
Yes, I would be interested in an update on that. And thank you very much. I'm glad my answer was helpful to you. Um, I, I didn't actually realize when I was answering that question that it was such a personal question to you. But, um, but yes, thank you very much uh, uh, for that. I'm glad that that helped. Okay, so... Yes. So let's go ahead and wrap up. Uh, we will wrap up this episode now, and I will encourage you to check out my podcast with Phil Lord that we posted yesterday. It's a pretty, it's a good two-hour talk, uh, getting into the legalese and the legal world of Scientology, and we talk about Danny Masterson's case quite a bit. So I hope you guys will check that out, and of course, the Critical Conversation shows on Friday. All right, guys, I will see you next week. Bye bye.